Before we start this special edition of the Lois List podcast, I just wanted to extend my thanks to both Wirana and Lois Register for supporting this year's Outlook edition of the podcast. Thank you for your help in getting these podcasts out and for your support of open and robust dialogue in shipping. It is greatly appreciated. Each year, Lloyd's List likes to gather a group of industry leaders, lock them in a room, and not let them leave until they have divined the fate and fortunes of the shipping industry for the year to come. And that's what we did this week in London, at the annual Lloyd's List Outlook Forum. Having gathered a baseline of crowdsourced knowledge from the ever-insightful Lloyd's List readers, we invited an all-star lineup of industry leaders and guests to join us for a discussion of the opportunities and threats that will be shaping shipping next year and beyond. Now, we do that because, well, frankly, it's entertaining, but I think there is real value in these conversations because, as anyone who's been listening to this podcast will know, the industry is changing, radically in parts, less so in others, but the business of shipping is having to adapt. Understanding the tipping points that will determine the future of the industry is, to my mind, important. The forces that are determining the course of shipping zero-carbon transition and with it the future of the commercial architecture of the industry, that's all playing out in front of us right now. And I think there's been a step change in the industry conversation this year. It's messy. Not all regulation is fit for purpose. Not all companies are doing what they have pledged to do. And the industry is, frankly, still off track from where it needs to be. And yet the maritime conversation has finally started shifting from aspiration to action this year. Joining me to discuss these shifts and trends towards our collective future were BIMCO's president, Nicholas Shoes, Shell's general manager of decarbonisation, Dr Alexandra Ebbinghaus, City's global shipping logistics and offshore chairman and chair of the Poseidon Principles, Mr Michael Parker, and starting us off, Cargill Ocean Transportation's wonderful global operations director, Iman Ebdala. And I started by asking Iman the same questions that I posed to all of our guests to kick us off. What is it that's keeping you awake at night? Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you, Richard, for having me here. Um, an interesting question, a big question, definitely not an easy one to answer, especially amidst everything that's happening right now. From an industry perspective, I think what's keeping me up at night is the geopolitical situation. Um, that is accelerating continuously. Um, I think we're all feeling the tension globally on a global scale. Um, we see what's happening in the Middle East, um, what's happening in Russia and Ukraine and the Black Sea. And it doesn't seem that the situation is going to get better. Obviously, as you said, we're all you know, trying to stay optimistic as much as possible and stay positive as much as possible. But that's definitely a grave concern. And I think the gravity of the situation is not just the geopolitical situation, but the implications of the geopolitical situation on global trade, on making significant progress when it comes to our decarbonization ambitions and so forth, our ambitions in terms of safety as well. So unfortunately, it is undermining and it's deterring progress on various fronts. Um, I'm sure some of you have seen already the announcement that was made from COP28 um, you know, on the strategy and the resolution to try to phase out fossil fuel as much as possible in the near future. I think this is a positive signal. 
Um, but again, if we are so um, intertwined in the geopolitical scene, how are we going to be able to have the right emphasis on what matters the most? And what matters the most is saving our planet and making sure that the industry stays as sustainable as possible on all fronts. A good start. We will come back to some of those points, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, Alexandra, let's move to you. What's keeping you awake yes. at night? So, um, frankly, my cat is waking me up regularly. I mean, it's just, you know, middle of the night. Hello. <laughs> but, uh, so what, what really then stops me from sleeping again is, uh, I mean, you know, it's the same thing, but, but really more from an, I'm, I'm thinking more of an environmental point of view. We, yes, we had COP, but I'm not sure when you look at respecting nature, which was one of our pillars, it's more than just climate change. Climate change has the focus of the industry because you really can only focus on one thing. But I'm not sure whether people are familiar with the planetary boundary. So you have nine planetary boundaries and you have things like man-made chem chemicals, you have the nitrogen cycle, fresh water, you have all other aspects which, which go into you know, the health of the planet. Climate change is one of them. But you know, we have other aspects which are really coming in, into the force again. And just looking at climate change, of course, it has a lot of impact on other planet, planetary boundaries, like water supply, green water, blue water. I'm getting a bit depressed just thinking about it. So, but what we can do, I mean, what we're focusing on here now is, the, is, is really the climate change, and that needs to be addressed. And that is where shipping, of course, can have a, a clear impact on it. So, but then it comes into, you know, you have not just all these things happening on, on the environmental front, but the geopolitical, you have to keep a business running. You have to make decisions which actually are sustainable. So sometimes you, you just start somewhere and you just go in, into a, a hole of, of, of des desperation, but then, you know, you have COP coming out and you think like nothing is going to happen and then it's actually going to be the first COP without any agreement. And at least they're made, you know, at least fossil fuels is now mentioned in it. So there is always, you know, you have to look at the positive news as well, that there is opportunity space going forward. Um, Nika, um, Alexandra is depressed. She's in a hole of desperation. Can you help pull her out? Give us some optimism. Well, yes, I, I can try. I sleep well, to start with, um, which, is, which, which is lucky, I guess. Um, but it's also because I'm reasonably optimistic with a couple of things, which I'm sure we will turn to, so maybe that helps you. Um, I, I think that the regulatory framework is realistic. I think we have good chances to achieving that. Um, I think there were results in COP achieved which could have been, in fact, much better if uh, I'm German, so I, I, I can admit that uh, Mrs. Baerbock, our foreign minister, she demanded the uh, phase out of fossil fuels uh, unabated or abated. I totally disagree with that. I think abated fuels is really not having too much that speaks against it, it's meaning that if you use fossil fuel and you carbon capture, uh, well, you, you capture the carbon, um, it should be continued to use. So from those points of view, I'm, I'm generally speaking fairly optimistic. As we've heard before, I'm very concerned about the geopolitical um, 
situation we've seen two totally unjustifiable attacking wars um, and uh, I, I think our uh, solidarity should be uncompromised because they are attacks on uh, our free values they are attacks on our free world so that uh, keeps me awake at night but otherwise Alexander I'm optimistic I think we are not in a political discussion here we are in a trade discussion but I wanted to make this part clear Thank you. Good. Well, I'm not going to hold you personally accountable for the German economy, but um, we might come back to that at some point. Um, Michael. Uh, shipping bankers are, <clears throat> by definition, optimistic um, if they last more than about six months. Um, but it is, I agree with Ema, and I'm just reflecting, this is probably the unsafest time in the world since the Cuban Missile Crisis, just from the ability of leaders to actually control control things or not allow things to get out of control and it's of course very difficult when one of the major players in the world a security council member a nuclear power is as nick has said is one of the aggressors because that hasn't i know if you take a, a, a different perspective you could say the west has been engaged in wars in the middle east but i think there's a difference between global instability um i mean People are now, no doubt, poring over maps of Guyana, the fact that Venezuela might invade a place where everyone speaks English. There are 200,000 people in that part who speak English, and maybe this is Rishi's Falklands moment if he gets a move on. But the point really is, who knows where one of these little incidents might crop up? And what that will do is affect economic activity and confidence. And I think that's the biggest concern, bringing it back to shipping, is that um, we don't really need the world to sort of go into a deep recession. There's clearly a recession of some sort coming next year in most of the Western economies, but hopefully a shallow one. But that could easily be severely sort of disrupted. Um, so I think you can't um, not watch what's going on in the world. This is not a 15-second TikTok thing. You actually have to understand some of these issues in some depth if you're in the shipping industry clearly how it affects your business is very important. But I think I wouldn't disconnect COP from that either because I think one of the things, you know, as putting aside what Greta says, blah, 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 a lot of people also took the view that holding it in an oil-producing country was, was really wrong. Quite why they're now going to hold the next one in another oil-producing country seems a little odd. But let's see, let's think about what came out earlier this morning. One of the comments from one of my colleagues who attended for a large part of it was what's happened, what happened in Dubai was the private sector took over. Now, the agreement, of course, is a national agreement, but what was actually happening was the private sector who are going to have to finance most of the transition with, of course, public sector and government frameworks really asserted themselves in the sense that they were present in very large numbers, which includes the energy sector. And we can't forget the energy sector is the one that has to do the transition. So we depend upon them. Although what I did um, look up during a, a Getting to Zero Coalition meeting, um, I just switched my camera off, and I worked out that the market cap of Amazon is three times the market cap of Shell and Total put together. So if Amazon want to go into the zero-emission fuel business, they can do it. So I think the energy sector has to not be complacent that they will control the timing of it. 
Um, so I sort of, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic because I think what shipping has done in the space of 12 months is actually emerge at the forefront of leading the transition. Now, it can't do it by itself, clearly, but I think, and I didn't, I wasn't, in the end, I didn't go, but what I read Arsenio Dominguez had said was very, very positive. You know, there is an agenda for the IMO, the industry will get behind it, and let's hope that the agreement reached in July is carried out in all the detail it needs to be, and above all, that, you know, we remain, as an industry, pragmatic, because it's pragmatism, in the end, will drive this. Idealism won't get us there, um, but it is important that we remain ambitious, and that means from zero emission where possible to reducing emissions. The one thing, sorry, I don't know if I'm answering your question, I never have answered your questions. Really. You're answering several questions. Um, no, but the, the one thing I do want to say before I forget is shipping is the only industry that has verifiable, pretty reliable emissions data. And that drives everything. It'll drive the data around global trade, supply chains, and everything else. So having the only data that is really there from, you know, from, a, from a scientific, reliable perspective and a global regulator makes shipping at the center of all this. And we're very lucky. Um, and so I remain optimistic that you know, shipping will get there by 2050, but may, may you know, get there faster in some respects than others. Um, right, let's move on, um, because I want to ask what uh, you see as the greatest risk to shipping businesses over the next two years. Now, I suspect we're probably going to be going over some old ground here, um, and we've noted, you know, regulatory uncertainty, access to finance, geopolitical risk, administrative burdens, global recession on the list of options, but I'm assuming there may be a few others in your uh, list of nightmares. Um, Let's, uh, let's start with uh, Nico, sorry, uh, uh, come with you at the end of the table. What do you see, because I mean, it, it's a very nebulous question, I agree, but I'm deliberately opening with a two-year time frame because we've got some immediate concerns ahead of us. I don't want people thinking in terms of 2050 because, uh, as I say, I want to focus this conversation around the pragmatic, the adaptable bits, the thing that people are actually doing and closing that gap between the rhetoric and reality because we are deeply pragmatic people in this room. Nico. Um, <clears throat> well, let me start by, 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 by what I don't think is the greatest risk uh, on, 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 on your list here because I, I think in a way I answered it for me the largest concern is geopolitical but, 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 but I've said that. Um, I don't see... Um, what is here the second largest risk, the regulatory uncertainty, as really something which is of huge concern to individual owners. Um, the regulatory framework is fairly clear. Um, we have uh, a CII regulation update coming in. I, I think that will be done prior to it really starting to, 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 to bite. Uh, the ETS is under introduction. Um, but it will be there and it, it, it will be um, clear. Um, I, I was surprised to see that, that regulatory uncertainty is here the second largest risk for the next two years um, because we should start to see the regulator not so much as the opponent anymore. We, we, we should see him as an almost uh, 
alliance partner, Michael said that Arsenio is having a very pragmatic, a very realistic approach. I, I would second that. I, I think uh, we are on a very good um, track. So I would move the um, regulatory uncertainty away, and then I would jump to the administrative burdens, which in fact I see as a concern coming up, because with this clear regulatory framework coming in, um, there will be administrative work coming to, uh, towards ship owners and especially smaller owners who don't have the infrastructure to really tackle that. They will have a big concern on that. I, I think it will not uh, burden Cargill, it will not burden Shell, but uh, smaller uh, Trump owners will have quite an administrative work to do. Maybe that, that is a kind of like a start of the answer. Hey man, I mean, the, the danger with these conversations is we focus entirely on decarbonization as a topic. And of course, there are many other things that are concerning the shipping industry right now. And I think for those of you who, who weren't out in Greece at the Global Maritime Forum, where both Michael and Eman were, um, the tendency is amongst the industry leaders to discuss those big topics. And we sometimes forget we know, but we sometimes forget in those conversations that we are not a homogenous industry. We are an industry that is fragmented, as Nico rightly points out. The, the Trump owners and their ability to adapt to the geopolitical risk and the changing uncertainties around them is not the same as Cargill or Shell. Um, do you think that shipping's renowned adaptability, its ability to um, deal with the onslaught of war, of uh, a slowing Chinese economy, of um, the fact that maritime trade has, uh, you know, reduced 5% this year. You know, this is just business as usual for shipping, surely. Or do you think there is something more fundamental, as, as, as Michael alludes to? You know, we're at a point where geopolitical risk is, is the highest it has been for some time. How does, you know, is that, is that a concern? Is that, does it affect business models, do you think? I think, uh, will it affect business models? My short answer is yes it will definitely affect business models. I think as a shipping industry, as an industry, we are going through a huge transformation. We are an industry that was extremely fragmented and will we start seeing um, consolidation? Yes, we will, because we're entering into um, an era that's gonna be a lot more complex, a lot less, um, we're entering into deglobalization. Um, and at the same time, the opportunities and just the business model of arbitrage and so forth is just going to completely change. When we, start talk, when we start talking about green corridors, for example, what does that mean? What does green corridors mean? It means that specific trades are going to be pinned to specific segments and to specific fuel types. So what does that mean as well? So yes, we are nimble. Yes, we are agile. Yes, we do adapt regardless of circumstances, regardless of geopolitical risks, yet that does not mean we will not also transform. When you talk about digitalization and transparency and having certain standards, again, as an industry, we thrived on being a black box where the relationship between owner and charter, the basis of that relationship was everybody keeping information to themselves. And this is where operators, for example, came in and thrived at that, at that opportunity to be able to refine those different data points. Whereas going forward, with EU ETS, with CII, um, and hopefully that will change soon, you know, and with all these new regulatory measures, 
and the industry in general driving for transparency and standardization, what does that mean? That means that everything is going to be an open book, and hopefully this is our objective. Our objective is to make you know, a certain level of data sharing the new standard. So how do we adapt, and how do we, where do we go from there? So as an industry, we're going into a lot more complex territory, and that will definitely require a different business model to keep your business profitable and viable. Um, Michael, I mean, geopolitical risk, obviously, you know, that is affecting, and I, I want your view on that, but I'm also interested in this access to finance uh, bit as well, because we've mentioned Poseidon principles, we've mentioned the results are coming out, and there is a reality here that transparency is not the end goal. The, the end goal of that transparency is to make the industry make different decisions. So we are going to see capital be allocated to people who are prepared to make the right decisions. That changes the nature of access to finance in shipping. So I want a quick view on that, if you don't mind. Um, <clears throat> the thing that is, the thing that regulators, bank regulators, but it's more than bank regulators, because effectively it's central banks regulating the financial system. The thing they are more focused on behind the scenes, other than financial stability, which is, of course, the most important, is climate risk. And you will have seen recently the ECB criticizing a number of, didn't name the banks, but a number of European banks for continuing to say one thing and do the opposite around fossil fuels. And I think that it is, it is the combination of what I'd say the new and the traditional. So the new is regulators expect banks to be transparent, at least with the regulators, as well as obviously their shareholders and the public around the decisions they're making. And so you referred in your introductory remarks to a lot of greenwashing disappearing. I think uh, one thing worse than corporate greenwashing is you know, banks greenwashing because regulators don't like banks saying one thing and doing the opposite. That will take a year or two, I think, to bed down to get to that point where the financial system is being regulated and reviewed, so the actions are being um, uh, punished, if you like, if they're the wrong actions. The one good thing for the industry has been recovery. I, COVID, um, for, for most sectors, and including now, of course, the drilling sector and the cruise sector, the two very different sectors which were hit by COVID have now both in strong recovery. But every other part of the shipping industry basically did well coming out of COVID. So the industry, from a financial risk perspective, is a lot less. And that has meant deleveraging at a time when central banks wanted that to happen. So from a financial position, the industry is in a very good place. Now let me go to the traditional problem, which is excess capacity. You know, shipping has only ever lost money because ship owners built too many ships. The big change, picking up on what Eman said, which is relevant to your question, is the shipping, future of the shipping industry is now going to be decided by the regulators, finance, and most importantly, cargo owners. The ship owner, I'm sorry I have to say this, but the ship owner who is crucial physically to the whole operation, of course, their decisions are actually going to come after rather than before. A lot of what happened before was ship owner decided to build a ship and that was great because it subsidized global trade and everything else. That's now going into reverse. So people like Eman are going to be really driving the industry and Alexandra, the cargo owners. And that I think is actually good from the perspective of finance because it'll tie very much the capital and the investment by 
the big cargo owners, think of Cozev Alliance and others in the container sector. So actually, although the, the need for shipping finance at the moment is relatively low because people are not quite sure what to order, but that will come in the next 12 to 24 months as the new ships um, are ordered or delivered even. Um, I think finance is actually in quite a good place. So don't, just because it's sort of um, not, uh, there's not a huge amount going on at the moment, that's primarily because ship owners are very liquid. Ship owners don't need to borrow money. One of the things that's also happening is because of things like the Sea Cargo Charter, the Poseidon Principles, and all those initiatives, is a lot of second-hand ships, older ships, which would be refinanced fairly regularly, are not getting refinanced, i.e. the ship owner doesn't need the money, and they don't want to, um, they don't want to lead to the Poseidon Principles, you know, refusing to lend the money, if you like, as a result of that. So I, I'm optimistic around finance too, but, but I think fundamentally, if the supply of ships gets out of sync again, and we see this a bit in the container sector, then the risk is shipping, which is still a dirty word in the banking regulator's um, lexicon, if it, gets, if it comes back again as a dirty word, that will, if you like, upset the ability of banks to finance some of the newer technologies. Okay. No doubt we'll come to a few of those points. Um, clearly, geopolitical risk uh, came out top in your poll. It came out top in the industry poll, um, things are getting a little bit spicy, um, so to say, and the industry, as adaptable as it is, um, it is very difficult to predict over the next two years how the industry can mitigate some of those risks, because we are not just dealing it, with it on one front, it is multiple fronts, and the complexity of the industry is changing fundamentally, and I think that is probably borne out in these results. But I want to get a slightly wider view, because the next question is, I guess, the big one. And I've deliberately broadened it out from two to five years because the questions are now about the chicken and egg. Is the bigger challenge the availability of the new fuels, the cost of the new fuels, the decision to order the right ships now and make a leap of faith almost? Or, one that I wanted to put in because I don't think it's talked about enough, the sourcing of trained crews to handle the new fuels because... Frankly, we are dealing with a bit of a talent crisis in this industry, and I don't think it is being thought about hard enough about the people that we are going to get to deal with these new ships, these new infrastructures, plural, and this new commercial, commercial architecture that we are dealing with as an industry. So that is another one. Alexandra, let's come to you on this one. We have had a few conversations about this over the, uh, recent years. Um, I mean, are we past the chicken and egg phase of this discussion yet, do you think? No, I mean, when you just look at what's in the news and what people are asking us as a fuel supplier, I, I think the chicken and egg is definitely still there. Um, you know, when, when you talk about fuel availability problems from a ship owner's point of view, from a fuel supplier point of view, I say, you know, what is the demand? You know, so, you know, when Nico said, you know, regulatory uncertainty, he doesn't see that. For me, yes, the regulation may be there, but how is it being implemented? What is the meaning of fuel EU maritime? And then how will people react? Where is the demand coming from? What is, is being in demand? Because, you know, frankly, 2% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions per megajoule up to 2030. You know, for something, you know, in school for Europe is about 15% of, of fuels globally. I mean, it's 
it's good regulation, we need it, but how much does that actually demand for, for new fuels coming in? And then the, the critical thing is we need more. We need more to meet the ambition for the IMO of, of 5% to 10% globally for close to zero emission fuels. And these fuels are significantly more expensive than the fossil fuel equivalent. So, so what is the position of a ship owner to be able to afford those fuels, if I may say so? Because, you know, if the cargo owner doesn't pay for it, I mean, shipping may have made a lot of money recently and it's going down, but, but basically they cannot pay themselves for everything. So you need to either have this regulatory mandate which creates a level playing field because if everybody is in the same position, then you, know, you can sell it to your cargo owner or you need cargo owners to do this. So, so this whole business case for decarbonization, for, actually de for the demand of these low carbon fuels is still relatively in the open because the, the mandates are quite limited of the regulation coming in. If you're looking at CII, it's a very ambitious regulation. I, I don't think any other industry has gone to regulate the operational emissions, not the design, but the operations. But then when you have operations, you have technical efficiency, operational efficiency, and you can change the fuel. So can you then, as a fuel supplier, say there is definite demand for low-carbon fuels? It's, it's really difficult to, to then invest and, and predict what is happening. So yes, the chicken and egg is still there. But just before I move on to Nico on this one, that, that question of the demand signals, right up this year to the point of MEPC 80 in July, all I was hearing from everybody mm -hmm. was, we must get a robust agreement from the IMO. We must get something that is aligned to 1.5 in the Paris Agreement. We need those demand signals as an industry in order to tip the balance for the green fuel producers to go beyond FID. We didn't quite get there, but we weren't far off. And yes. yet the same people I'm talking to now are saying it wasn't enough. We didn't get demand signals. We are not able to go beyond FID. There are hundreds of hydrogen and ammonia uh, fuel production uh, mm -hmm. uh, proposals out there, and they have collectively spent billions of dollars on them. But there are trillions of dollars that still need to go into these before they are actually scaled. What is it that is going to be a significant enough demand signal to get that fuel availability going? So, so when we are talking to uh, potential customers, it is, you know, they ask for, and then it's like, well, it, it is really expensive, you know. So, so for, for somebody to take final investment decision for fuel which only goes into the shipping industry, you have to have, you know, contracts in place to actually be able to sell it at the cost plus margin. So you have to have a positive business case, and you have that, to have that also to get from a bank to actually get the financing. Mm. You know, if, if you, because the, the, most of the technologies we're talking about, these new renewable and alternative fuels, there are novel technologies as well. We shouldn't underestimate the risk that most things have been demonstrated perhaps in pilot, but not commercial, they're not mature technologies. So, so you, you, need to have, you, have, you need to have some certainty about where the product is going and who can afford to pay for it. And, and that is one of the differences. You don't build a refinery or you never built a refinery in the past because of bunker fuel demand. You, know, you, you build it because you had a range of different customers from aviation, road transport, chemical industry, bitumen, fuel oil, all 
form part of the business case. Mm. But if we are now talking about building a facility which is dedicated to one industry to supply the need of the shipping industry, you may have to be very certain about the demand and you need really, you know, take off contracts. This is how LNG happened because you had long-term contracts which really funded then the investment. So that's one of the, the challenges of, you know, getting, and, you know, the ambition of the IMO has not been translated into global regulation. I mean, Nico, there's a lot there, but that, that, that <laughs> question of, um, you know, the chicken and egg, the, the, the fuel availability, it's one thing for a ship owner to take a leap of faith and order a dual fuel vessel, knowing full well that it doesn't necessarily have to see a molecule of that zero carbon fuel for the first 10 years of its lifespan to be economically viable. It's a whole different ballgame when we're talking about the financing and final investment decisions of hydrogen fuel production infrastructures. And, you know, there's a recent example out in Amman where they were basing a lot of the uh, initial research and funding around the German economy being, uh, you know, available for uh, green hydrogen. Now, things have changed, as we have already discovered. The world has become slightly more complex. And I'm not holding you account for the German economy, but the reality is that that investment uh, rationale no longer holds. And they're actually now thinking about rerouting some of that into ship bunkering. Um, you know, we're, we're shooting a moving target here in some respects. I mean, how do you make decisions in that uh, range of complex moving scenarios? Well, thank you. There, there are indeed a couple of, of points. First, Alexandra, I totally agree with you on the chicken and egg problem. The, the question was referring to the next two years. No, so I that's think where I... Uh, five years. Five. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, the first said, question yeah, yeah, on, yeah. The, on the regulatory. So otherwise, we are, yes. we are fully aligned. There is a big, big uh, issue. Um, give me two minutes just to say how efficient shipping is, we, because we have to be a bit aware of which industry we are, we are speaking here. There are about 70,000 ships in the world and in average, a ton mileage uh, emits 40 grams of uh, carbon uh, uh, equivalents, uh, 40 grams. I heard that number in Cyprus and I thought that sounds pretty low. And I looked up in the internet um, how much somebody who is jogging in the morning is emitting if, if he does the same distance, one and a half kilometers or, or, or mile or something. There are different numbers in the net, but there is no number that you can somehow uh, divide and turn that a jogger can use anything less than 80 grams during the same distance. So a jogger is using twice as much CO2 as we in average in shipping. I find that important. I know that, of course, the comparison is not correct, but it shows how efficient we are. Um, what Michael said in the beginning um, is correct. We are globally regulated. Uh, there is another thing with shipping is, and that was proven during the um, corona crisis, we are fairly price insensitive uh, on the demand side. The supply side sensitivity, of course, is huge because if there are too many ships, the price drop is huge. But if there is a um, shortage in supply, so more demand, the price sensitivity for the decision to transport or not to transport is extremely insensitive because transport cost overall does not really influence the calculation of most products. That means that if there is 
the global regulation that we have to use zero carbon fuels, our price sensitivity to buy that will be very low because we will transfer that pricing into our uh, customer's calculation, which is the cargo owner. So from that point of view, I'm very optimistic that once the regulation is there, uh, there, 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 there will be um, solutions. The availability of new fuels also within the next five years is not given as a major threat because all ships I know of are dual fuel ships. So they are maybe prepared. Uh, they are dual fuel LNG. LNG is available in any case, maybe not green LNG yet, but it's available. And the dual fuel ammonia ships and methanol ships, um, MASK will have secured their own methanol access in any case, and the others are still free for the next five years. We are always talking time limit. Um, the alternative will be there. Um, and now, Richard, I come to your question, really. Um, what is the biggest challenge? I want to make a case for the seamen. Um, we are facing in the world a shortage by 2026 of 56,000 educated officers, not traditional officers, not to talk about officers who are aware how to handle ammonia-driven main engines or new technologies or air lubrication, etc. Traditionally educated officers, 56,000 missing within the next two years. Um, there is a global demand for labor, educated, skilled labor, um, and the decision in a modern world to go to sea, to stay three months away from girlfriends or family, um, the decision to be in an environment where you have even your free hours not in a, in, in, in a sportive place or whatever you, you, your, your preferences are. Um, the availability of people prepared to do that will diminish. And um, now I'm making a case on behalf of BIMCO um, that to achieve sufficient semen, of course, the first thing is salary. The second thing is um, that we give a safe and secure environment and that we give them a working environment on the ship that they feel as comfortable as it is possible to feel comfortable on the ship. But the most important, the fourth thing, is that we show them appreciation because the seamen are really doing what we are all selling. We are selling transport service and without the seamen we won't be able um, to do that. Still today, two years after the end of Corona, seamen are not key workers. They are not considered internationally as uh, existential uh, workforce to keep the world trade flowing, which is key worker. And I would strongly make a case that the biggest challenge for the next five years, given that we have time on the other uh, fronts, is that we all work hard to get seamen into the appreciated position which they deserve. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Good points. Um, Michael, I think you wanted to come in. <clears throat> Nick makes two very good points. The first is, I always knew jogging was very dangerous. Now I've got a, <laughs> I've got a scientific basis to justify why I haven't done it. Are you accurately um, recording your ton miles, Michael? <laughs> I, I actually, on Sunday, managed to walk 
uh, inadvertently about 11 kilometers and, and took about 24 hours to recover from it. Um, <laughs> I do have one of these, you know. So, um, I think his second point, which ties in with what Iman said about the transformation of the industry, is about seafarers. But it also goes to the point that the skills required to operate a ship are going to be absolutely, hugely different from what they have been. One of the things I, when I was in Busan a few weeks ago at a decarbonisation conference in Korea, the subject was really ammonia, the expectation that ammonia will be the fuel that everyone begins to use. And the question really is, they take safety for granted in the sense they expect it to be regulated, they expect Lloyd's Register and others to come up with all the protocols, the IMO to regulate it. The issue really is about bunkering and how that can be done safely in port areas and stuff. So there's an, in Asia, it seems to me, there's a sort of view that this is the logical thing to do. Um, but that, of course, is going to require you know, higher skills and safety on board, all those sort of things. I think, um, so, so that goes to, to Iman's point, this industry is going to be transformed in so many different ways. And it may well be that when you are having to pay, and in the end the consumer will pay for a much more expensive, more highly qualified crew, people in the UN may take more notice around the fact that these are not just essential workers, they're some of the highest skilled workers operating in a global industry. And, and that will be a very different thing from what most of us are used to. There was a point that uh, Alexandra made, which I want to kind of politely disagree with, which is I think one of the things we had concluded from this transformation is that what shipping shouldn't do is be at the whim of the energy sector and have any fuels that are just for shipping. I, the fuels that are used in shipping should be used in the rest of industry around the world. I accept there may be some specific things, but the sludge at the bottom of the barrel that we're now trying to get rid of shouldn't ever again happen. So the challenge for shipping will be competing for all those other fuels, but they will be multiple use. You put a five-year time frame on it, so I have to get this in. Within that period, you know, the nuclear reactor to go on board commercial ships will have been prototype, will have been tested and stuff, and I think we will see, and it came out, I think, in COP, that the world cannot get anywhere near 1.5 without a huge increase in nuclear power. And the fact that we've had nuclear shipping for nearly 70 years illustrates we've been sitting on the opportunity for some time, and let's just assume it works, and the economic model works, but within your five-year time period, I think you will see much more attention being given to how nuclear technology can be used in, in commercial marine, not just military marine. Spoiler alert, nuclear will come up uh, in one of the later questions, but um, the short answer summary here is, is you tend to agree with our poll. Uh, availability of new fuels is going to be an issue. But I want to segue into the next question and bring Iman in because it, it leads on from a number of things that have just been mentioned. And I ask this question every year because it is my job to hold you, ladies and gentlemen, to account. Um, and I think it is a good question to ask, but it's the same answer every year, interestingly enough. It has not shifted in terms of the percentage. Um, and the, the question of safety, I think, is, is, is too often left to the end. And I didn't want to leave it to the end today. I wanted to make sure that it was there because, as you have said, it is a question of making sure we have the right people, but we are not just dealing with established technologies. We are dealing with multiple new infrastructures. We are dealing with toxic, explosive fuels that are coming in at a rapid pace, unprecedented in terms of the timelines, 
And I am not yet hearing enough about the detail of the safety standards, the training, and all of the infrastructure that has taken decades to be built up around established technologies like LNG. Now, I know all of the engineers in the room are going to tell me, it is perfectly safe, we can do this. But I would suggest there is still a large question mark over whether things like ammonia could yet be derailed. And I'm thinking specifically in terms of conversations I've had with my friends at Lloyd's Register and other class societies. Um, just before the last major nuclear accident, we were all looking at the plans for nuclear ships. Um, they were getting very excited, as were lots of other class societies. As Michael says, these are established technologies. Um, it took one large incident for those to all go swiftly back in a drawer and never to be seen again for the next 10 years. Now, the question is, if we have an ammonia-level accident of that magnitude, and let's be clear, that is not going to be pretty, um, are we potentially going to derail an entire avenue of fuel development? And is safety being taken seriously enough is the ultimate overriding question I'm asking here. That's a lot, oh man. But, I mean, give us a view. I mean, just generally on the safety thing, but also whether you have concerns about these new fuels and the, the standards that are being built up around them so rapidly. Hmm. Do we have concerns? Um, I think we all have concerns. Yet, at the same time, um, you know, we are the same people that have landed on the moon. That's number one. Number two, we are the same people that today we have ships that are actually running on nuclear. Let's put that into perspective. While we sit and debate constantly on whether we should even consider the word nuclear or not, and remember at the GMF they said that they're going to use a different word for it so that they take away all of the negative connotations, which I think is, is very, very important. You know, yet we're very, very skeptical in terms of standards when it comes to ammonia or when it comes to methanol, et cetera. I, what I did hear, though, is that for LNG, for example, the first ship that called a port um, that was fueled by LNG, the safety corridor within that port ran to miles and miles and miles, whereas today, ships that are running on LNG or carrying LNG you know, it's just bec has become common. So I think the short answer is, are we concerned? In general, yes, we are concerned. But at the same time, we don't think that this will stop us from actually bringing about this new, the, the new technologies and the future fuels. Um, I like what Nick said about, you know, our carbon footprint. And I don't think we give ourselves enough credit as an industry. You know, we transport 90% of global commodities and global trade, and we emit 3%. Let's look at that correlation for a second. Because at the same time, you know, we're transporting 90%, yet we're emitting 3%. So we're already doing a lot for the environment. Now, to Alexandra's point on, you know, the chicken and the egg issue, which to be very honest with you, I mean, I'm, I've heard that problem for so long, I feel that we need to get past that point. I think as the regulate, if you look at it as a triangle, and within that triangle you have the regulators, I would put the fuel suppliers at one angle, um, and the energy sector, and on the other angle I would put demand. And by demand, I'm referring to all of the different industries, the aluminum industry, the steel industry, soft commodities, agriculture, it's those industries that have to, by signing up to the Paris Agreement and each and every 
um, industry having their own emissions targets that have to prioritize scope three. Once they prioritize scope three, such as COSEV, such as Zemba Coalition and so forth, this will give us the answer to be able to make sure that we order the right ships and so forth. I think having the right fuels is gonna happen. We're not, you know, when you look at the IRA, for example, and all of the different projects and all of the different investments that are going into future fuels, I'm not in a lot of doubt that we will have the future fuels. I'm also not in doubt that we will have the right um, technology. I think what we do need is to make sure that the process in itself is equitable. That's my biggest risk within the next two to five years, a bit more even than safety standards. So demand and making sure that it's equitable. I'm in danger of going all cop on us and letting timelines slip, and we've got a few questions to get through. But I mean, the, the, the safety thing I think is important, so I, I don't know if anyone else wants to come in. And I, it is interesting you used the, you know, yes, we did land on the moon, but I would remind you that there were a number of explosions and people lost their lives in the process of doing that. And, uh, you know, poor old Lyca the dog was the first one up there, but uh, I don't think we're going to get a dog in charge of pneumonia carrier to test it out for us. So, you know, I think it is, I think it is serious. Um, Alexandra, yeah, you look... Shane has, uh, you know, as one of the largest chargers, we, we have reported in place partners in safety since 2012, and, and you, you, there's a lot to be done. There's a lot of leadership, you know, just operational, just with normal. You know, shipping in itself is not the safest industry, and, and I think we have been working very hard in the recent years to actually improve on safety. Now we, we face the challenge of new fuels, new operations coming in. Now, I, I think they have shown, at least in, in Shell, with the LNG carriers, and, and there were significant concerns. We, we had uh, experiments in Spade Adam where we just released a huge amount of LNG to say, no, it doesn't explode, you know, when you have a large release like that. So, so a lot of work needs to be done, a lot of training, a lot of development of processes. So it is difficult. It needs a lot of effort, but it can be done now. I think Shell has been very relatively vocal on our concerns with regard to especially the ammonia toxicity. There are solutions for everything, but it needs to be carefully evaluated on, on what is possible and what is not. On the, if I may say, on the nuclear front, there are quite a few nuclear ships. There's a lot of training involved. They are very specialized crew. And when we're talking about commercial, we're talking not about the existing proven nuclear technology. People are talking about molten salt reactors. And there's not even a pilot plant or anything on land. They're still in, in early stages of research. So I don't necessarily agree with the timeline on, on getting that happening. But it then focuses again, you know, the, the, the question on safety, on, um, on, on spills and so on. And what we have seen Shell is very active in hydrogen itself. When there was an explosion at a retail station in the Nordics, it immediately questioned on a global basis the, the safety of hydrogen as an automotive in, in retail. So, so I think it's not just, you know, if something should happen in the marine sector that a question is coming, because these fuels are being used in other aspects. I think it will come and, you know, it needs to be safely managed not just in, in the marine sector but everywhere else and any new fuels which has a big accident or even a relatively minor accident which could be bigger will have impacts on how it's being in, implemented also in the shipping industry. Good. 
I am going to move on because I am in danger of overrunning and I want to get through a few things. I'm just putting this up here for reference. I don't think we're necessarily going to add anything by debating the fact that uh, growth is slowing in China, but uh, there it is. That is the concerns of our readership, I think is worth noting. Um, the fuel reduction measures, I wanted to quickly ask you, Eman, because I mean, we have first-hand experience with Cargill this year with the wind assistance and uh, you know, a deeply impressive investment that I think you know, otherwise would not have happened as a result of you know, companies going above and beyond and actually trialing uh, these things. I don't know if you've had any initial data in terms of the uh, efficiency of those installations, but maybe give us a few words in terms of what it actually takes to get these ships more efficient. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think we, we're, a lot of times we're fixated on, on future fuels and new technologies and so forth. And, and there's a low-hanging fruit that we don't necessarily give the right level of emphasis, which is how can we ultimately consume less fuel per ship so that we can afford the future fuels that we know are going to be a lot more expensive. Um, Wind assistant propulsion is a very good example. Yes, it is an investment. Um, is there a business case? The business case depends on fuel prices, correct? So, but at the same time, you know, we do believe that whether it's wind, whether it's paint, whether it's ducts, we should all be doing everything we possibly can. And I'm glad to see on the survey results that this actually, you know, got a high scoring, that this is something that we should be focusing on because ultimately this is what we need to do. We need to be able to consume less fuel. But let me also take the opportunity to focus a little bit on voyage optimization because I think that and supply chain optimization because that's another low hanging fruit that I don't think, you know, and unfortunately it's a lot easier said than done because when, as soon as I say the word supply chain optimization, that means that we need to work together everybody within the same value chain, everybody within the same trade suddenly need to be working together instead of competing against each other. So a lot of more work needs to be done there. We're seeing a lot of positive um, collaboration from ship owners and ship managers in terms of reducing um, the ship's fuel consumption. But yet, there is a lot more work to be done when we start saying supply chain optimization. Even within Cargill itself, we own 27 terminals, and a lot of the commodities, we control the trade from beginning to end. Yet, within the same organization, because you have different PNLs, we can't come to an agreement when it comes to making sure that we can split incentives to take the right decisions. Um, uh, yeah, writing about paints and coatings is not the sexy end of shipping journalism, I can assure you, but I'm glad it's come out on top because I think it is often overlooked in terms of a technology, but actually, as Iman says, focusing on the easy wins, the things with relatively low-term uh, paybacks in terms of uh, the, the investment, uh, the uh, efficiencies you actually gain. We, I fear we are still using um, the availability of fuels arguments as a pretext for inaction on making the existing fleet more efficient today. And I'm hoping that, uh, that we are having the beginnings of a slightly more pragmatic conversation about that. I'm going to fly through a few others um, because we are running out of time. But the fuel uh, results, I don't think, are going to surprise anybody. We asked, uh, if you ordered a new building next year, what fuel type would you choose? Um, unsurprisingly, most went for dual fuel methanol. Um, now. 
Are they doing so on the knowledge that they can absolutely get hold of green methanol at the end of the uh, delivery process? No, they're not, because, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't exist. Are they doing so on the knowledge that the dual-fuel methanol ships are, in fact, going to be more efficient once they start running them? No, ladies and gentlemen, they are not. Um, they are doing so because they are being asked to do so, and it makes some more sense to hedge one's bets, I would argue. But I am a mere cynical hack, and I suspect our panel are going to disagree with me there. Um, I mean, are we surprised here that the methanol is, 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 is out in front? Nico, you're sort of well, shrugging nonchalantly. I, I, I think the methanol issue is a transitional uh, issue. It's, uh, it, it, it only works if the C used is biogenetic. Um, biogenetic C will become a scarce resource. I mean, we are talking, just Richard, to give you this number, because I like that number as well. Um, there are 70,000 ships, I said this before. To make these ships burn green fuels, you would need 700 gigawatt in energy, which is equivalent to 700 nuclear plants, um, which is twice the amount of nuclear plants we have installed today. So to believe that we can run ships on green fuel without a huge, unimaginable expansion of uh, green energy is simply un unrealistic. But to then believe that we will have the equivalent amount of green sea to merge the hydrogen, not with nitrogen into NH3, into ammonia, but into uh, methanol, uh, is unimaginable because it wouldn't cost one Amazonas uh, 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 forest, it, it, it would probably take three Amazon forests uh, to, 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 to plant enough soya. So I think methanol is technologically there, Maersk has the excess, and that's why they do it. And the business model is quite interesting. They sell the miles that they have. Of course, they don't transport green containers from Shanghai to Europe on this methanol ship. They say we have X amount of miles now green sea transportation and sell that for a container from Copenhagen to Abenra at a huge premium. And there's 100 miles then are transported green. So, no, if, if, if you ask me, methanol, I, I think is a transition which makes sense, but it's not the end solution. And yet, I've put this up here because this is the, uh, the punchline almost. By 2040, we think that ammonia is going to be the dominant fuel, followed by methanol and then synthetic LNG, and 15% on nuclear, according to our readership poll. Uh, based on what, I have no idea, but um, I guess they were the available options that we gave to them, and that is what they answered. So um, I'm cantering through, because A, we are running out of time, but also I wanted to show you the next three in succession. So as you all know, MEPC 80 this year in July uh, set out 2050 targets, but crucially, they also had waypoints, I forget the exact nomenclature, checkpoints, that was it, Waypoints is the other one, um, for 2030 and 2040. Um, now, the question basically was, are we going to hit those targets that we have all been chomping at the bit for? I mean, everybody and their dog was telling me, we need ambitious targets from the IMO. We need the IMO to align itself with 1.5, they said. Uh, Post-MEPC 80, there's a lot of people um, uh, you know, backtracking, I should say, uh, on, on what it was that they thought that we should do. So are we going to meet those targets, ladies and gentlemen? Well, 2030, no, no, we're not. 76% of you don't think we're ever going to get anywhere near 2030. 
Um, what about 2040? That's a long time off. Are we going to hit that? No, no, we're not. 56% are saying, no, not even going to anywhere near 2040. 2050, I mean, most of you are going to be retired or, you know, let's face it, not here. Um, <laughs> no, no, 44% of you still don't believe we are actually going to get anywhere near 2050. Where is your ambition, ladies and gentlemen? Come on. Ridiculous, shocking behavior. Um, I mean, a few reflections on that. I mean, I, you know, our, as I say, our, our readership is probably not, you know, necessarily an industry consensus here, but are we concerned about the gap between the rhetoric that we saw at the beginning of the year and the reality that we are now apparently seeing here? Anyone? Maybe it's because people didn't actually expect the IMO to do what it did. That's really yes, I think you may have a point. There. This is a conservative yeah. industry where people don't like change. But the reality, as you've heard from all of us, <clears throat> and, and Alexandra is in a difficult position because she's in an industry that is now being agreed by the world to, to phase out most of her products by the end of 2050 or something. But it's a huge opportunity. <laughs> of course it, it is. is. That's, we are overwhelmed. But, but the point I want to make is that there are lots of concurrent pressures making things happen. So we saw recently a Virgin jumbo jet take off fuel by SAF. I mean, that was a PR stunt to all intents and purposes because we know the aviation industry won't have enough SAF to actually fly, and we know that flying because of the weather is actually going to get more and more uncomfortable. And let's talk about the weather, what's happening in the Panama Canal and yeah. stuff. I mean, so we're seeing the reality of climate change affect the shipping industry uh, and also will affect aviation too. So I, I wouldn't... I think you're reading far too much into a, a sort of instant poll that, you know you journalists love to, love to do. I think the reality is that this is an industry which has a lot of older, wiser people who are actually also at the forefront of being quite radical and a lot of younger people desperate to change. And I think it's that combination that makes this something that will happen. The other important thing is, and Nick talked about it, we know it can happen. It's about scale, it's about money, and it's about regulation. This industry can decarbonize, and it can decarbonize by 2050 if we deploy the right levies, taxes to make carbon less attractive. We can do it. Okay. There are some more poll questions, which will, unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm not going to get through to them all. I will give you a, a, a brief um, spoiler alert for the thing you will probably read tomorrow. Um, on green corridors, um, will they have a material impact on the industry? No, apparently not. Um, it's disappointing, isn't it? Um, but we have run out of time, so I'm going to just ask uh, the panel to give us... We started with what's keeping them awake at night. I want to end on a positive note, and Michael sort of started us off there, I think. Give us uh, some optimism. Give us a view of why we should be optimistic that we are now having a deeply pragmatic, uh, action-focused conversation, and yes... There are challenges, but why should we be optimistic that actually these results are wrong and we can do this? Uh, Iman. Sure, I'll start. I'm very optimistic because I believe that the IMO, they will deliver on what they say they do deliver. So I think the strategy and the ambition will be made into a regulation. So that's the first reason why I'm very optimistic. I'm also optimistic because I've been in the industry long enough to feel that today, things have changed. The rhetoric has changed. 
And the action has also changed. And I think we're definitely on the right path. It's only a matter of when are we going to get there. Even if we don't get there by 2030, are we eventually going to get there? I think we will. Yes. I we are talking to a lot of ship owners about their fuel choices, of course, as you know, one of the fuel suppliers to the industry. And I think the discussion has changed fundamentally. I mean, there was this kind of blue-eyed, you know, well, we are wanting green shipping, but surely it cannot be more expensive. You know, why, why would there be more expensive than fossil? So there's more pragmatism, there's more realism about, you know, how much it's going to cost. And that also then means that people are actually more actively looking for solutions. So this book and claim approach is being not just by mass, but container, bulkers, you know, it's implemented. So there are options to afford, you know, to, to voluntary, not waiting for regulation. There's much more, you know, knowledge in, in the industry and there's much more forward momentum. So when you just look at the dual fuel, it doesn't matter whether you have methanol or LNG, though we would be in favor of LNG, but the, the thing is you, you need to have a dual fuel capability because at least then you're prepared to do something. Why, why do people still go for conventional with scrubber? But what we are seeing is so many more people are actually looking at the opportunity space for, for new things. So there is definite movement, but it's based on much better knowledge and experience and really understanding the options. So, so we're moving forward quite significantly in that direction. Well, yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm uh, very optimistic as well. In 2008, which is, as you know, the base year of the IMO uh, regulation, the shipping world emitted 1.1 billion tons of CO2 equivalent. In 2022, um, the number that is circulating around, uh, it's always very difficult to find a real reliable source, but that's somewhere in the 850 million range. Um, so we are actually already improved the, 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 the efficiency substantially. That, of course, is a result of slow steaming in the poor market. We, we all know that. That's why the regulator found the EEXI as a, as a response to secure that. There will be some growth until 2030 for ships, so we have to get a little bit more efficient. But 2030 is not a complex thing to do. We have the operational and the technological efficiency gains. So 2030, I'm really optimistic. 2040 is a question whether we will have scale until then. Uh, 2050 uh, will be fine. So I think we can end uh, this on a positive note and, and, and a cooperative no note with the regulator to say, yes, we realize climatic change is taking place. We want to put a stop to that. And uh, let's be, let's be uh, positive and optimistic and have the cargo pay for the bill. <laughs> Seems a little unfair to end there. <laughs> um, Michael, you've already given us a bit of optimism, but you know, in your newfound position as shipping's answer to uh, Greta, which uh, um, is, a, is a crown I think you're wearing proudly now. Um, give, give us the final thought. It feels like it might have been 1734, but I think the first one of these shipping outlooks, we probably struggle to have very many interesting things to talk about. 
other than will the dry market be up or down next year and those sort of things. You know, so we could go on for another three hours on really interesting topics, which shows how far things have come. The one reflection I would have, which sort of will lead to the next panel, the shipping industry is now on the front page of every newspaper regularly. You know, when you see on the front page of the FT, you know, Christmas could be delayed or whatever, it shows the, I'm afraid the ignorance of the FT that Christmas has already been delivered. Yeah. So the Panama Canal not having enough water. But the fact it was there on the front page. And then you turn it open and then there's a whole page on the Dark Fleet with no credit to Lloyd's at all for all the work you've done, which I think is Some disgraceful. Generous. Because that article, but at least they were covering the topic. And what that says to me is shipping is now front page news, whether it's good or bad. And it is now incumbent upon all of us to keep that happening in order to get these things discussed at the right level in, in society generally, but in government that puts this industry at the center of not just decarbonization, but also security. LISW, the minister, I won't name the minister, but we all know her, talked about food security and energy security. There's none of those unless you have shipping security. And so the world fleet being able to sail safely and deliver global trade remains the most important thing for the global economy. And let's keep shipping on the front page, whether it's for good or bad reasons, um, and hopefully good rather than bad reasons, because the next panel is going to talk about you know, stuff that unfortunately puts shipping, when other people put the industry into a, becoming a tool of foreign policy and other things, it makes life even more difficult for ship owners, banks, and insurers. No, I agree. And somebody actually handed me this sticker before we started. No shipping, no shopping. I thought it was rather appetizing. <laughs> somebody can have that if they want. Um, um, thank you very much, uh, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, a round of applause for our wonderful panel. <laughs> <laughs>